0: Welcome friends and colleagues, I will briefly review what we spoke about last week, which is the concept of distinction which is introduced to us when God separates light and darkness. We made a point that the word used there with the root of bet dalit lamed badal is not the same word as the word usually used for separation. In fact, the word used for separation is talit, something like parad or something like parat. A cognate in English. Separation is nothing more than that root with the se prefix, which is very common in many Indo European languages. And not in English, but yes, se in Latin, in Spanish, Zich in German, sa. In uh, Slavic languages, we asked what kind of a distinction between day and night, I'm sorry, between light and darkness is this? Uh, After all, we constantly live in a mixture of light and darkness. We walk under a tree, there is a shade. We are now in semi-darkness. There's twilight, there's sunset. There are candles and flames and torches that bring light into The night. So um, there really isn't any kind of separation uh, between light and darkness, but there is a distinction. There is a conceptual distinction between light and darkness, and the actual separation didn't happen until the fourth day, when it says that God made a distinction between day and night. But here it says between light and darkness. We said, we proposed that distinctions are being introduced here foreshadowing the concept of the Torah law, which comes in the middle of the five books of Moses and are crucial to Judaic view of religion. Law is all about distinctions. It's about things that are good and neutral and crimes and how different circumstances and intents make something that may appear to be a crime into a neutral, something that appears to be a neutral into a, a, a positive thing, or at least an allowable thing. Uh, I'll give you an example now, let's say, of a good Samaritan law. If someone tries to help out another individual and injures him, according to Anglo-Saxon law, Uh, that person is really liable because there's no obligation to help another individual in Anglo-Saxon law. So the states have passed, uh, many states have passed a law exempting that person from liability. So this kind of distinction's intent to help convert something from a crime into something that's optional. And there are so many ways in legal thinking to judge, parse, distinguish, discern, and separate various situations and circumstances. That is the basis of all law. It is also the basis of Torah law. We're being introduced to the concept in the framework of light and darkness. (coughs) Okay, what I want to do today is put some flesh, pun intended, into this issue by focusing on dietary laws, and you will see why. Now, dietary laws uh, is something that uh, Jews have always struggled with, especially to explain it to others. Uh, It seems to be pretty arbitrary why uh, certain animals are kosher, uh, uh, lawful to eat, and others aren't, why certain ways of preparing food It renders something edible and other ways of preparing it make it not kosher. This is a problem which is set up by the Bible itself because these laws are presented with no explanation and no uh, statement of purpose. The laws are found in Leviticus 11 verses 1 to 47 and Deuteronomy Chapter 14, verses 3 to 22, Vaikra and Devorim. Many reasons have been offered uh, from antiquity. And in fact, there is a division in general about explaining reasons for laws. There is a trend of thought, going back to the rabbis, that we must obey God will, and that in itself is a positive value. And there is a trend that we should, can and should speculate about what He had in mind, about the reasons for the commandments. The problem with speculating about the reasons for the commandments, of course, is that if you're really convinced that this is the reason, and then circumstances change, maybe you no longer have to uh, follow this law. For example, the rationalistic 19th century approach was that it is healthful to eat kosher. A pig is a dirty animal. Certain animals carry diseases. Well, when refrigeration came in and the USDA started supervising, uh, many people felt that that no longer applies because now everything is healthful and clean. The first uh, allegorical explanation was offered in the letter of Avaristius, where the high priest is asked by the Alexandrian commission to explain these laws and he offers an allegorical explanation without in any way, however, uh, making the laws inapplicable. And so it went with many different explanations. Uh, Certain animals have a cruel nature, uh, certain hunting birds, Therefore, we avoid them, so we should not begin to think it's okay to hunt, hurt, and damage other creatures. Uh, Ruminants, cows and goats and sheep are peaceful and pleasant animals, and we will take on some of their nature if we eat them and not um, uh, carnivorous, uh, attacking uh, vicious animals, etc., etc., While there is no overriding reason that has been or can be offered for these laws, the concept of distinction could be an extremely useful one. Just to quickly review, we said that distinctions are crucial to the religious law approach to uh, religious life. We pointed out that there are seven items where the word Badal distinction is utilized in the five books of Moses. There are 21 instances in which it is used and it translates into three categories. A category of vertical separation, holy and non-holy and concept a concept of horizontal separation between Israel and the nations. We could call it separate but equal. All nations have rights before God, but the Jewish nation is separated or distinct distinct made distinct uh, through dietary laws and through other lifestyle lifestyle requirements. And then there is conceptual separation between light and darkness. As we said, there is no real physical separation. There are shadows, etc. But there is a conceptual separation. And these three things are the ones that we uh, say in the Havdola ceremony. uh, Between Sabbath and the weekdays is another issue. It does not count as three according to the Talmudic discussion in Pesachim. 113 to 114, and that's another discussion. But this uh, interesting arrangement of having seven items, which are repeated three times, so that you have a total of 21 uses of the word in the five books of Moses, um, recalls the key word concept, and we spoke about that last time as a technique for Bible study. So, distinctions are very important. How does it apply to the field of Kashrut, or Jewish dietary laws? So when we look at the actual passages, we will find that there are several groups. There are birds, most birds are kosher, the Torah lists the ones that are not, implying that the majority are. In practice, we approach it only through uh, Masorah, through tradition, uh, because we no longer can identify most of those birds. Then there are animals that walk the earth. Ruminants are okay, they have to chew cod and split the hoof. Therefore, some exceptions to that, and they are listed in biblical verses. A fish, a very sizable proportion of fish is permitted to eat all fish that have scales and fins, but others not, uh, like lobsters and uh, eels and things that don't have scales and fins. Still, you have a very large <coughs> uh, proportion of fish species that are edible and uh, a large proportion that are not. When we come to the insects, though, we see an interesting conundrum. This point I picked up from the Tikva podcast on September 4, 2019, uh, by Rabbi Meir Soloveitchik, who also wrote an article in Mosaic magazine September 5, 2019. I'm sorry, I think the podcast was September 4, 2020. And the article was uh, in 2019. It's based on the philosopher Michael Wyshegrad, who asked this question. Um, Among the insects, all creepy things are forbidden. And, you know, they trigger disgust reaction. Uh, They are small, they are dirty, they... uh, Seem to be very far from what humans being human beings are, and you can kind of understand it. But there are five species of grasshoppers that are permitted. Now, except for certain groups like Yemenites and Moroccans, we have lost the way to precisely identify these types of grasshoppers. Um, there is somewhat of a movement to preserve the traditions of various communities as to what can be and cannot be eaten. I went once to a lecture that the Orthodox Union ran about it. It's, it's quite interesting uh, when you have there's a sign uh, the, the stomach of the grasshopper. if it forms a letter ches in Hebrew uh, there are lines that create such a letter. It's halal, in Arabic that means permitted. If it forms the letter tes in Hebrew, it's Tamei. In Hebrew, that means unclean, very interesting. Nevertheless, only minority of the Jewish world now eats it based on their own tradition of identification of the species. But why, why, why should grasshoppers, a very tiny proportion of insects, and as you probably know, insects are the largest and by far the most numerous species in the world, why these things are permitted? So, the proposed answer that Travis Lavecik, um, uh, laid out, uh, based on Michael Visegrad, is that every type of edible thing must be, and it's important for it to be, and it's crucial for it, and its own merits to Have foods that are who have some that are permitted and some that are forbidden. Even in the Insta group, which you can understand should be should contain the largest number of forbidden things. Really, perhaps all. That's in practice what where we are right now because we can't eat any of them unless you're from Moroccan or Yemenite communities. Uh, Even in those things, though, by intent there must be something that is permitted. So, this is this concept of distinction. The Jewish law requires that one lives his life in constant legal analysis. What is permitted, what is not permitted. Because feelings and belief are a poor barrier before desire. Fine. Let us read... The verses that after this introduction, I hope you'll agree with me very clearly lay out this perspective in regards to dietary laws. Leviticus 20 24 The previous, I read only a part of verse 24. It says, I am your God who has set you apart from the people. So here is the distinction between Israel and the nations. And you should, shall set apart the pure. behemoth a beast from the impure. The impure birth from the pure. You shall not draw abomination upon yourself through beast or bird or anything with which the ground is alive. This is insects. Which I have set apart for you to treat as impure. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and I have set you apart from other peoples to be mine. Okay, so, keeping the principle of distinction as the bedrock of a certain type of religious spirituality, which relies on law in daily life, in communal life, in national life, to tell what is right and what is not, that involves the entire human being in intellectual analysis and sets a barrier before desire, lust, and want. If the person himself is unable to, others in the community or the rabbinic uh, leadership will analyze the situation for him or her and give a clear religious decision. And by the way, Islam is Similar in this regard, uh, with Sharia, which is religious law, also ruling all aspects of life and also producing religious decisions for to guide and restrain the individual. So, to come back, when we're told on the first day of creation about separating day and light, we understand that it's not a true physical separation. We're talking about introducing the concept of distinction. And this concept of distinction is found 21 times, seven times three, three categories. Uh, All of this is to point out to a very discerning, granted reader, how important and basic this uh, concept is. I'll make one other quick comment. Uh, for uh, the the Christian leaders uh, re, uh, listeners are aware that uh, this issue of uh, permitted foods was the first that uh, began the process of separation between Christianity and Judaism, as uh, is related in Acts 10, when Peter had a dream with uh, a container of all kinds of unclean animals, that he was commanded to kill and eat. And how hard it was for Peter. Uh, we have other sources uh, subsequently in the New Testament and uh, in the pseudo-Clementines uh, that this was a, a difficult thing that he went back and forth on. But um, the, the abandonment of religious law as the guiding principle of religious life and transition to faith required uh, such a step and um, it is not surprise why this was the first step because by removing the concept of distinctions between what is kosher and lawful to and what is not, one could promote uh, the lack of distinction between Jews and Gentiles and eventually move it out of the realm of the law into the realm of faith. Thank you for listening. And friends and colleagues, may you only have blessings.